if you would remain standing for our, uh, our scripture reading, our, our sermon today uh, is out of Matthew 6 as we continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, preaching today uh, is Paul Ramsey. I see some people waving. Is it hot in here? Excellent. I have no idea how to fix that. Uh, I just wanted to know. All right. Uh, ten years we've been saying this, uh, and it was true ten years ago, and it's still true today. That every week we go to the scriptures because it's there. The person and work of Jesus are most clearly revealed. So hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 6. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies in the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, Even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. It is wonderful to see you all. My name is Paul. Like Brandon said, um, I am one of the pastors here. It's a joy to be preaching God's word for us this morning. Um, Wonderful to see you. We just turned down the AC a couple of degrees, so hopefully it'll cool down. Um, As Brandon said, we are continuing our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount, which is a teaching from Jesus Uh, captured in chapters five through seven of the book of Matthew. And we're doing kind of an extended walk through the Sermon on the Mount uh, in this spring season. This is the fourth sermon today in Matthew chapter six. In this section of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus has been talking about issues surrounding provision and generosity. We looked at uh, the Lord's Prayer a couple of weeks ago as an expression of our need and our Heavenly Father as provider. Uh, The week before that, we looked at the discipline of generosity and giving. And then last week, Pastor Dodds preached a beautiful sermon on how Jesus spoke about the generous spirit of the kingdom and the invitation he gave to his disciples to live a life with eyes of light, lives of hospitality and generosity. And then the last words of Jesus in that passage last week before our passage for today were that clear and famous warning of Jesus, you can't serve both God and money. 
In last week's passage, Jesus addressed how money displaces God in our hearts. And in this week's passage, Jesus will show us how God's love displaces the anxiety that comes from pursuing money. And as we look at this text where Jesus is addressing anxiety with respect to money and provision, it's tempting to think that because over the centuries we've systematized the food uh, preparation industry and we've technology that makes the production of clothing much easier, it's easy, it's tempting for us to think that we are a long way from where Jesus' hearers were back then. We're a long way from the anxieties that they faced. The truth is, though, that while we have made much progress in terms of technology, the human heart hasn't made that much progress since then. Just one survey uh, that I saw from a few weeks ago found that finances are the number one stressor for American adults. 73% of adults rank their finances as the number one cause of stress in life, ahead of politics, work, family, all kinds of other things. That number has been pretty constant in recent memory. I, was able, I looked back as far as the 80s, and it's usually between 70 and 80% finances are the number one stressor for American adults. So when we come to a text where Jesus is addressing anxiety with respect to provision, we too are people profoundly in need of Jesus' words. And so as we look at our passage, I think we're going to see there's, this is a very famous passage that you've probably heard and referred to many times. Um, so there's a number of ways that we could approach this, but I think for our time this morning, I want to zoom in on, I think, three things that Jesus does for us. First, he invites us to look at the birds and the flowers. Second, he's going to invite us to look from those into our own hearts for just a moment. And then third, he's going to invite us to look at him and our life in him a little bit differently. And so first, Jesus invites us to look at the birds and the flowers. Our passage follows a pretty simple structure. Uh, up front, there's a command that Jesus gives. Don't be anxious about what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. And then he gives two kind of extended illustrations to make this point. And then finally, he wraps up with a couple of verses of concluding commands. And so look with me at verse 25. Jesus says this. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Remember, Jesus is coming right out of saying you cannot serve both God and money. And... In saying that, Jesus wasn't exaggerating to make a point. He wasn't using strong words uh, to try to get people to serve God more than money. He wasn't mincing his words. He meant what he said. It's either one or the other. It's either one path that you're walking or the other. You are to serve God in every way at all times. This devotion to God, Jesus says, must be singular. There are things in life that you can focus on various things at any particular time. For example, reading. Uh, you can read multiple genres of books and say that you're a fan of both genres. You don't need to devote yourself to a single genre of reading, but there are also things that you clearly can't do that with. My wife, for example. I can't be faithful to my wife for 30 out of every 31 days and say I'm doing pretty well. That's all but one day a month. That would be absurd. So there are things that you can't be uh, dual focused on. Similarly, you can't devote yourself to God some of the time and then to other things other times. Devotion to God is an all-encompassing singular pursuit. There are many different things that we can do that are part of our devotion to God. My devotion to my wife, for example, is an outworking and an expression of my devotion to God. But it is clear from Jesus's teaching that devotion to money is not something that is compatible with devotion to God. And so the discerning listener coming out of that passage and into our passage for today would have understood the gravity of Jesus' teaching 
that ended there in verse 24. And would have been thinking, okay, if I'm serving God all the time, then how am I supposed to provide for my needs? And Jesus answers, beginning in verse 25, he says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So early in the chapter, in verse eight, Jesus had said, your father knows what you need even before you ask him. Here, Jesus points specifically at our basic needs for survival and essentially says, if God has given you life itself, which is far more than food and drink, will he not also give you the food and drink that you need to sustain the life that he gave you? If God has given you a body, which is far more than clothing, how much more can you expect God to provide the clothing that you need to cover and protect your body? See, one key characteristic of anxiety is that it tends to be all-consuming. If we're anxious about providing food and clothing, then that anxiety will crowd out all the rest of what it means to be alive and to have a body. So Jesus says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? To quote one commentator, the first reason for not being anxious is that it narrows life intolerably. If we focus on these lesser things, in other words, we will be miserable. And Jesus goes on to give two illustrations. Let's read on. Verse 26, he points to the birds. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So Jesus says, look at the birds. Here are animals who have no conscious experience of God, and yet they trust God instinctively. What's interesting here, though, is that almost all of a bird's life is spent looking for and eating food. So Jesus is not correcting the need for his disciples to work for food. Instead, look at what Jesus says specifically about the birds. He says, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. So day after day, birds look for food and they eat it. What they don't do is they don't plant seeds They don't harvest and store up in storehouses in case they have a really hard day or a really hard month. They just eat and then trust that God, instinctively trust that God will provide for them tomorrow. If these birds, this is the point that Jesus is making, if these birds who have no conscious experience of God trust him to provide instinctively, how foolish would it be for us who do have conscious experience of the glory and grace and mercy and provision of God to distrust God? to not trust him in a similar way. Are you not of more value than they? Jesus' point here is clear. Don't be anxious. Trust that God will provide for you. And Jesus then turns to lilies to make a similar point about our clothing. Verse 28, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Solomon uh, had been king of God's people almost a thousand years before Jesus' ministry. And by this time, referring to Solomon was kind of a parable. Uh, It was an often, it was a proverbial statement. Jesus here says, consider Solomon, who is this symbol of the best that humanity has to offer in trying to create beauty ourselves. 
the wealthiest, most beautiful clothing. And then he points to the lilies of the field, which Jesus probably uses as the general term, generic term for the wildflowers that covered the hills of Palestine in the spring, this multicolored, beautiful scene. And Jesus says, compare the two. Even the flowers, right? The life of which is so brief are arrayed in beautiful splendor by God. They are alive today and then they die only to be thrown into the oven tomorrow. And yet God cares enough to clothe them with beauty that surpasses even the beauty of Solomon's clothing. And they're clothed this way without toiling and spinning. Jesus Jesus uses those words. They're clothed without toiling and spinning. He uses that phrase to address everyone in every one of his hearers. That covers both the, the work of the men who would toil in the fields and the work of the women who would spin in order to create clothing. And so this is Jesus's way of saying, everyone listen. In all of your anxious toil, you work for this beautiful clothing while God makes it clear that he is pleased to give even these temporary flowers, beautiful clothes. Don't you think that he cares much more for you than for them? that he'll provide the clothing and the beauty that you so desperately seek after. And again, here, Jesus isn't rebuking labor. It's not a problem to be creative or to work to celebrate and create beauty. It's not a problem to clothe yourselves well, but don't worry about it. Jesus is saying, don't be anxious about your clothing. Don't look at others and wish you had theirs. You have been clothed in splendor. Jesus ends this illustration in verse 30 with a gentle rebuke. He says, oh, you of little faith. That's a phrase that occurs, of course, here and in a number of other places in Jesus's ministry. And that phrase he always uses directed towards his disciples. So in other words, this isn't Jesus saying, I guess you must not have faith. Or I guess you're not a Christian. It's also not Jesus saying, I guess you don't have enough faith. As though the problem with their faith was they didn't have enough Like, and it was a problem of quantity. Instead, Jesus is saying, you have a deficient faith. It's a stunted faith. A faith that is being hampered actively by the pursuit of other things. By concerns that are not concerns of the kingdom. And so Jesus says, don't let your faith remain deficient. Don't keep trusting in yourself to provide. Trust God to provide for you. What is he getting at here? He says, look at these two creatures, the birds of the sky, the lilies of the field, and consider how God is always providing for them. Remember, Jesus is answering the question, how will our needs be provided if we're always, if we're always to be serving God? The answer, God is always serving us. How can we be freed to serve God in all that we do? God has promised to provide us with all that we need. You see, the picture Jesus is painting of our relationship with God here is a beautiful one of mutual service. Think about a marriage or about a friendship. If you approach that relationship as one in which you're constantly thinking about your own concerns or you're constantly resenting how the the other person is constantly thinking about their own concerns, which is another form of thinking about your own concerns, what kind of friend or partner are you in that relationship? If, however, you're constantly looking out for the concerns of the other, you're constantly looking to serve the other, how different is that experience for that person you're in a relationship with? And if both of you are doing the same thing, how wonderful of a relationship for that to be a part part of. 
In Romans 12, the apostle Paul says to the early Christians, seek to outdo one another in showing honor. Right, so Paul describes this competition. The competition in relationship is perverted when it's how much can I get from this relationship? The answer isn't though not to compete, but instead to compete in the opposite direction. How much can I serve this other person? And Paul says this to a community and says, and because he knows, and, and this is what Jesus is inviting us to, a community full of brothers and sisters who are all looking out for one another's interests, who are all seeking to outdo one another in showing honor is an honored and served and provided for community. How beautiful is that to be a part of? And I would say it's similar with God. Jesus is saying to us, God, your father is always providing for and serving you. Won't you do the same for him? To use biological terms, think about a symbiotic versus a parasitic relationship. In relationship, to put it in a manner of speaking, we are either parasites or symbiotes. This is true in human relationships and I think also in a sense in our relationship with God. Some of the pagan deities, for example, sounded somewhat parasitic in the opposite direction. We were, you know, people are supposed to serve them, hoping that the gods would take notice of them, but they may or may not respond. And so sometimes those gods were parasitic, sucking life, but not giving it. The God of the Bible is decidedly the opposite of that. Jesus describes for us a creator who is always providing for his creatures, a father who is always providing for his children. Consequently, if you are not returning his provision with service, you resemble a parasite. You're taking everything and giving nothing in return. And now you can't harm God or suck him dry and that's where the biological analogy falls apart. But you get the point. A symbiotic relationship on the other hand is one of mutual service and this is the kind of relationship that God invites us into. In 1 Samuel 12, we're told, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart for consider what great things he has done for you. Samuel's saying to God's people, serve him faithfully on account of all that he has done for you. Mark chapter 10, Jesus speaking of himself says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, God himself came to serve humanity. Therefore, Colossians, the apostle Paul writes, whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So Jesus is inviting us into this life of wholehearted, undivided service to God and in God's kingdom. And Jesus says, don't worry, there is abundant provision because your heavenly father is an abundant provider. Verse 31 Jesus says, therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Verse 32, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So as you consider the provision of, the, of God for the birds and the flowers, look back at yourselves and see that your value in God's eyes as his children far surpasses any of the flowers or the birds. Trust that God will absolutely provide for every one of your needs. Don't be like those who are striving without knowing the love of their heavenly father, Jesus says. Your heavenly father knows you. He sees you. He knows your needs. And just like with these lesser creatures, he will provide for all of them. 
So that's the first thing that Jesus invites us to do, to look at the lilies and look at the birds. And then he invites us to look at ourselves for just a moment. He says, therefore, do not be anxious about these things. The question is, why are we so anxious about these things? To look at the Bible for just a moment, going all the way back to the beginning, one of the consequences of the fall in the Garden of Eden was this. this is, these are God's words to Adam, starting in Genesis 3, verse 17. And to Adam, God said, because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. He goes on. Those are the words of God to Adam in the context of a passage known as the curse that God speaks in response to the original sin. And from that point forward, the story of mankind's search for food and nourishment, as you hear there, is one of toil and pain. In pain shall you eat of the ground. By the sweat of your face shall you eat bread. The curse which came on account of the pride of humanity in desiring to take things into our own hands rather than trusting God to provide just what we need resulted in a life of just that, toil and labor for more and more and more because there's never enough. A life enslaved to the pursuit of more for ourselves is an inescapable symptom of a disease that according to the Bible plagues the entire human race. That's the way of the world according to Genesis chapter three and we have all kinds of evidence to see that that is the way of the world even today. And listen, Jesus isn't saying that food and drink are unimportant. Quite the opposite. He says in verse 32, your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But they need to be in their right place. They need to be in the context of a healthy relationship with your heavenly father who loves you and cares for you. And that is precisely what for us is so difficult. This difficulty expresses itself in kind of two key ways. One, we struggle to trust that God will provide for us. And two, even when we do see that God provides for us, it's never enough. We want more. And the world around us is cheering us on in both of those pursuits, both of those realities. To the first expression, trusting, uh, struggling to trust that God will provide for us, that he's trustworthy. The world is full of people striving after these things. The study of economics is fascinating to me. Uh, one of the terms that economists use to helpfully describe market dynamics and the economic processes within a community is scarcity. You're probably familiar with the term. Understanding scarcity, which talks about the limited supply of products and resources, is a helpful way to understand things like pricing and availability. An understanding of the scarcity of resources might lead you to take a trip to the grocery store to stock up on water and unperishable food before a disaster. Like we probably have, many of us have experience of from last week. For those of you familiar with the story of Joseph in the Bible, Joseph is a large scale version of that where God gave him wisdom to cause the storing up of resources for seven years of famine through which God used that wisdom that knowledge of scarcity to provide for many people so that they wouldn't die of starvation. But if we're not careful, scarcity can easily become the governing paradigm through which you understand the world and all of life. Dale Bruner, a well-known commentator, put it this way. He said, 
It's characteristic of the secular world, the world outside the church, to be obsessed with economic questions, to be almost entirely engrossed by consumer concerns, to be preoccupied with finding and getting better and better things. Right? It's up to us and we need to preoccupy ourselves with getting more and getting better things. And we're so enveloped in this way of seeing the world that we too often miss that teachings like this find their way into Christian teachings. In a Barna study from 2017, Barna is a group that does demographic surveys and, and, uh, and studies. In a Barna study from 2017, 52% of practicing Christians, which is more than half, agreed that the Bible teaches that God helps those who help themselves. And that's a problem. The problem is not in thinking that you should help yourself. Self-help is not antithetical to the gospel. Pursuing wisdom, pursuing an easier life rather than the consequences of foolishness. That's not antithetical to the gospel. What is antithetical to the gospel and the problem with this very idea as it's worded is that if God helps those who help themselves, you become your first source of help and strength and God is secondary. It's slight, but it's a profound difference. If you are primary and God is secondary, there's a problem. I work hard and God takes care of the rest. Can't tell you how many times I've heard that. That is thoroughly not Christian. God takes care of it all so that he can then invite you with the new life he has given you to join with him in the new creation that he is bringing about, which he has made you a part of. You did nothing to make yourself who you are. It is only by the grace of God that you are who you are in Christ as a part of his kingdom, as a part of his family. And of course, this doesn't absolve you of your responsibility in this new creation, right? The opposite of anxiety isn't sloth, it's trust. The question isn't, are you working or not? The question is, are you working from your anxiety or are you working from a place of trust, contentment, and gratitude? And so again, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you'll see that Jesus is bringing us to a very similar place. He's, pre he's, he's bringing us to a fork in the road and he's offering us two ways, right? There's either the narrative of the kingdom of God or the narrative of the kingdom of this world. There's either the narrative of violence or the narrative of peace. The narrative of generosity or the narrative of greed. Here, are you going to ascribe to the narrative of anxiety or the narrative of trust? Is your world characterized primarily by the scarcity of resources in a way that necessitates your continual and frantic pursuit of food, drink, clothing, provision, for yourself to make sure that you have enough? Or is your world understood primarily by the abundant provision of your heavenly father who has provided for your every need, even if it's not the way that you want it to be provided for and will absolutely continue to do so so long as you live. You see the world, the enemy, your own flesh, all would have you believe that there is not enough. Right, that if you want it, you need to go get it for yourself, that your provision depends on your hard work. But into these lies, Jesus comes and answers very clearly. He says, look at the birds. 
Look at the flowers. How much more will God, your heavenly father, take care of you? The economy of this world is one of scarcity, but the economy of the kingdom is one of abundance. The kingdom of God is rich. Its treasury is full. Furthermore, the king is your father. There's no question about your place in this kingdom. Your place in the kingdom of God isn't one wondering whether your needs will be provided. Your place in this kingdom is at the table of the king. So Jesus speaks to his disciples, exhausted from their anxious toil, and says, oh, you of little faith, don't you see how much your father loves you and is pleased to provide for you? Notice a couple of things, though, about Jesus' invitation. First, like I mentioned just a moment ago, his invitation is not to a totally passive approach to life. His invitation is not to passivity, but to an active trust in God as our Father and Provider. It is trust in God, as one commentator put it, to guide us and provide for us, not a lazy Christianity that is in view. The emphasis is on the anxiety that a lack of dependence on God produces. Also though, notice how Jesus talks about anxiety. He doesn't talk about anxiety here as though it is a sin. Here and elsewhere in Jesus's teaching, anxiety is not a sin but is instead a burden that Jesus is inviting to lift from our shoulders. When Jesus says in John 14 in a similar teaching, let not your hearts be troubled, in John 14 verse one, Jesus doesn't mean that a troubled heart is a sin. Jesus himself was recorded to have had a troubled heart at several times in his ministry. Instead, Jesus means that a trust in God will help us overcome this anxiety. A troubled heart only becomes sin when it's allowed to dominate our lives so that possessions themselves become our God. And constant anxiety is the result of this idolatry. That's when it becomes a sin. But Jesus is inviting us to a better way. Coming back to our passage, Matthew chapter six, Jesus goes further. He doesn't just say, stop being anxious. And he gives them something else to pursue. He gives them a replacement activity. Verse 31, do not be anxious. And then verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. So do you catch what Jesus is doing here? We are not just to refrain from anxiety, but we are to replace it with concern for the kingdom of God. And this is good news. We were made to work. We were made to cultivate. And rather than saying, stop working, Jesus is instead giving us a yoke and saying, do this work instead. A new task to direct our energy to. My yoke is easy and my burden is light, he says. We sang that song earlier. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will take your burden, take my yoke in, re in response. And so what does this mean? This is great news, but what does this mean? A friend of mine this past week was sharing with me something he learned uh, not too long ago from a friend of his who was walking through the book of Acts. And he came to Acts chapter two. It's a very famous passage where the early church is described. Acts two verses 42 through 47. And he was in this passage, which, and it says this, let me read it for you. It says, and they devoted themselves, speaking of the early Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul 
and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And the thing that struck him as he was reading through this was the order of those sentences. Because you would think that awe and wonder would strike the disciples after the signs and wonders were performed. But he said, that's not the order of the text. Instead, the, the awe and wonder that came upon the disciples comes after things that look much more ordinary. It's the ordinary life of the people of God, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. It was at that point, as they were living ordinary lives alongside one another, that they, that they, that they experienced awe and wonder at the peace, contentment, love, joy, fulfillment that they experienced as they engaged with the ordinary life of the people of God. Simply living in the way of Jesus was profound in its simplicity and yet world-changing in its power. So what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? There's other passages in the Bible that will help, helpfully flesh out this life of pursuing the kingdom as we go about our lives as a church. But here, just this one encouragement from Acts chapter two, it's not as, comp it's not as complicated as you might think. Enter into the community of faith the community of believers. Devote yourself alongside all of us to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus says in verse 34, and then he finishes with, and all these things will be added to you. That clause at the end of that verse is, is probably best understood as a continuation of what he was talking about. It's probably best to understand that within the context of the Christian community. God will take care of his people. And he will do that so often through the Christian community. Here's why I'm saying that. Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 10, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. These are Jesus's words from Mark chapter 10. And Jesus says, if you leave all of these things for my sake, you will gain all of these things now and in this time. You'll gain them a hundredfold. What could Jesus be talking about here except for the church? The family of God that you receive when you come to faith and you're baptized into this covenant community, you begin to follow you. This transition, this life change will cost you. It may cost you everything, but whatever it costs you, Everything you leave, Jesus says, will be repaid a hundred times over now. I spoke with a friend of mine just yesterday who was ministering to a struggling man, a friend of mine named Michael. He's a covenant member here. You might, you might know him. Um, I, I, just yesterday, I was with him and he was ministering to a friend of his who was struggling. And he was speaking the truth. He was speaking the word of invitation to Jesus. You know, to his friend, I was struck as I watched this beautiful scene, I was struck by the story that Michael had told me about his own life. He had been, for many years, seeking his own way. He was angry at people, he was angry at God, but then eventually, through no good of his own, no effort of his own, God softened his heart, drew him in, helped him to let go of his life and to take one step after another, rather than trying to have the whole path planned out. God taught him, don't be anxious about tomorrow, about 10 years. You don't have to get this perfect life all lined up. Just trust me today. I've given you, given you enough for today. 
And so he described this story to me, and he's not a rich man now. Uh, he still struggles to know where his bills for the next month are going to come from. He still struggles to know how there's going to be food on the table in the home that he lives in for the rest of this week. But the joy on his face when he tells his story is something that I will never forget. If you get a chance to meet him and hear his story, you'll never forget it either. His trust is in the Lord and with his heavenly father showering grace and provision on him often just enough for a single day. And he has found a joy and peace in that unlike a joy that he's ever known before. And the same is true for you, he'll tell you. It took a season of his life lived on the streets for God to bring him to the place where, to the place where he could finally, as he says it, let go and let God. He'll tell you, you don't have to wait and let it get as bad as I did. Sometimes the withholding of money is exactly what you need from God. But as Jesus invites you to follow him, to jump into the church and find there a new family who will encourage you to live a life of trust, you will watch as God gives you exactly what you need in each and every moment. There's one more big section that I'll leave for another day, only to say this, this new community in which we're invited to take part is a community in which the competition has been inverted. No longer do we, live, do we have to live a life in accordance with a narrative that says you have to have the nicer car, the bigger house, the nicest clothes, the tastiest food, the most hipster kitchen or whatever, the, you know, we don't have to live with that narrative anymore. Instead, we can live with a narrative that says, oh my goodness, how much more can I serve my brothers and sisters than me? Just yesterday, I was with Michael and, uh, and he was in our house and here's a man who has had his needs met very much within the Christian community. He's in my house and he makes one little observation in our kitchen. We just bought a house by God's grace and we've never owned a house before. And Lindsay and I, my wife and I were thinking about how to do something to the cupboards, not important. But Michael basically un, unprompted said, do you wanna put handles in those cupboards? And he, like, like, you need to call me before you do this. And, um, and what struck me in that moment is that's a really small thing. I don't need his help, right? I don't need to say yes to it. But when I think about the opportunity to say yes, to let him use his gifts, I then started to think about the many ways in which stories have been told of him serving his parish, him serving our church as a whole, him serving men in his life. This life of generosity, this life of communal service, of provision for one another is something that is accessible to each and every one of us in this room. You don't need to be the rich one. God takes our gifts and he builds a, a new and heavenly economy where all of us have plenty in the bank to give to one another. And so, Sojourn, let's seek to live in increasing trust to our heavenly father who provides all good things for us. Let's seek to live lives of blessing to one another that has to be found, not in a life lived in accordance with the I need more for me narrative, I need to just get my life right, then I'll be able to be generous to people. No, we get invited into a life of generosity today. And it's as we engage with that kind of economy that we watch as with awe and wonder as God does what only he can do among us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day, for your word, for your invitations to us, for your gentle correction, 
Lord, I pray that you would weave in our hearts the truth of the gospel afresh this morning. That you would change us on account of our encounter with you through your word. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would fill us and empower us to, to take your invitation to be men, women, children who trust you to provide for us, who trust you more today than we did yesterday, who will trust you more tomorrow than we do today. Lord, help us not to be anxious, but to instead be concerned with your kingdom and watch as you provide and teach us what a life of trust looks like. So we, we ask for your provision. We need your provision. And we're so grateful for this time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.